she really did think that there was a chance she could be executed. The mental torture and trauma of knowing that that's where your mother has spent her final days must have been hugely impactful on Elizabeth. There's good reason for Elizabeth to be terrified. Hello, welcome to the British History Channel with me, Philippa Lacey-Brule, and to our latest historian interview. If you've been here before, a warm welcome back. But if this is your first time, hello. Thank you for checking out the channel. If you love British history, you're definitely in the right place. We've got a back catalogue of historian interviews, which you can check out, virtual tours, mini history documentaries. And you can also join me live every Wednesday for Tea Time History Chat Live. Today, I am joined by public historian and author Dr. Nicola Tallis, who you might be familiar with because she's often on television programmes, especially about the Tudors. And I'm very happy to say she will be joining our September tour, The Rise of the Tudors, as a guest speaker. If you want to see more details of that, you can check those out on BritishHistoryTours.com. Nicola is the author of several books, The Uncrowned Queen, the Fateful Life of Margaret Beaufort, Tudor Monarch, which is all about the incredible figure who was Henry VII's mother. And you can check out my interview with Nicola, which happened in the autumn of 2023, all about Margaret Beaufort. She's written Crown of Blood about Lady Jane Grey, Elizabeth, excuse me, Elizabeth's rival about Lettuce Knowles, the cousin of Elizabeth I and wife of Elizabeth's favourite Robert Dudley, and All the Queen's Jewels, 1445 to 1548, Power, Majesty and Display. And very soon to be added to her catalogue, Nicola's new book, Young Elizabeth, Princess, Prisoner, Queen, is out in hardback in the UK on the 29th of February. Just this uh, last weekend, past weekend, should I say, I was with Nicola at Southwark Cathedral where she was hosting Tales of Youth, the Big History Night Inn. And this was an event that she'd organised to raise money and awareness for Papyrus, a charity dedicated to the prevention of youth suicide uh, based here in the UK. And we were treated to an incredible night with 12 historians, including a number who featured here on this channel, Tracy Borman, Gareth Russell, Joanne Paul, Matt Lewis, Helen Carr, Nicola herself. Um, and if you'd like to know more about Papyrus, their work, maybe even donate, or um, I will include a link in the show notes. There is an extended ad-free release of this episode available to members of my British History Patron. If you are a member, you don't just get extended membership, excuse me, you don't just get extended interviews, but a chance to submit your own questions to ask the historians, such as Nicola herself. We've had some absolutely brilliant questions put forward by our patrons for today's interview. And you can access that extended interview as well as all the other history lover benefits of which there are plenty. I do like to give good value. And uh, you can check all that out and sign up if you want to at patreon.com forward slash British history. But for now, let's get chatting to Nicola. Nicola, welcome back to the British History Channel. Thank you so much. You were here last autumn, kindly recording um, an interview with me about Margaret Beaufort, the matriarch of the Tudor monarchy and the topic, obviously, of, of one of your books. Um, for those, though, who don't... Well, I've done a little bit of an introduction to you in the, in the main intro, but for those of you who maybe don't know you, please can you tell us a bit about yourself, a bit about your work? Yeah, of course. So I am Dr. Nicholas Hallis, and I am the author of now five books, which is rather surprising in, in lots of ways, <laughs> considering that my history teacher told me I never succeed at writing one. <laughs> so right. <laughs> <done okay. laughs> and never listen to your teachers, children. Exactly. Um, But yes, so I'm here today to talk about my latest sparkly, shiny new book, which is Young Elizabeth, Princess, Prisoner, Queen. uh, And and thank you so much for my copy. I love it. I love it. it. And um, so I got this, what, last week or so? So I have started reading it. Obviously, I haven't managed to get through it all, but I'm very excited. And um, Anyway, we'll we'll get into there's so much stuff that I I just I know you've probably got in there that I can't wait to uh, to read. So, my first question though is, with the sheer number of books 
out there already about the Tudors and about Elizabeth. Um, what was your inspiration to write another book? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And you're right, there is so much stuff out there and it's quite different. Sorry, it's quite difficult in some ways to um, to find your your golden nugget, your thing that sets you apart from, from other books. And that is very true with this book, actually, because originally I was due to be writing a full biography of Elizabeth. And it didn't take me too long to realise that I didn't feel like I had that that thing, whatever it was, that thing that set my work apart from everybody else's. And to me, if you haven't got that, then there's no point in doing it. But what I did feel was that I had lots to say about Elizabeth's youth. And that was the part of her story that I was most interested in, because I think when we think of Elizabeth, like her or loathe her, and I know that there are people <laughs> on both sides, and um, I'm a bit in between, but I think that you, there's no denying that she is a queen that we all talk about, um, that appears regularly in popular culture and so on. And Elizabeth the Queen really is something that we talk about with the benefit of hindsight, because we know what happened. We know that she became queen. We know her successes. We know her failures. But if we strip all of that away and go back to her youth, we don't, Elizabeth never knew that any of that was coming. She didn't know that she was going to be queen. And so that whole kind of tumultuous, uncertain path to the throne was what really interested me. And looking at all the twists and turns of her life and how she was shaped as an individual um, and just everything that came pre-queenship, that was really what interested me. And that's what I hope I have brought to the table. That's why I was very interested when I saw, well, I knew you were writing it. And then when I got a copy, because I think she is, she's, quite a typical or she's a very good example of someone whose history whose history we look at backwards you know the Gloriana you know even virgin queen well you know who could have said she's definitely going to be the virgin queen until <laughs> until a certain point in her life and and yet we look at it as if I know there's evidence that she decided she wasn't going to be you know blah 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 we didn't know that at the time, they wouldn't have known she was going to end up as the Virgin Queen. Even she probably didn't really know she was going to end up as the Virgin Queen. Um, um, and uh, and it sort of goes, well, there was Edward and then there was Mary and then Elizabeth, blah. And, and, yeah, it's and so she, true. Yeah. So, that part uh, that, yeah, that part of her life, I think particularly during Mary's reign, it's sort of um, glossed over a little bit. Mm. And I think actually that's a really crucial point in Elizabeth's life and then comes the turning point in her status. So yeah, it is really important to, to study that part of her life and to, to really get that part of the story to understand how mm. Elizabeth does go on then to become, as you say, the Virgin Queen and Gloriana. It's just looking at everything that came before that. So we'll get into some of the detail of some of the things that happened in Elizabeth's childhood. Definitely. Now, um, I was interested, the Times, in their review of your book, described you as a zealous destroyer of myth, which I think you need a T-shirt saying, to be fair, because that's amazing. Shall I get one? Yeah. Yeah, I think you definitely <laughs> should have one. Um, so you've kind of already um, answered this a little bit, because I was going to ask, did you set off in your research expecting to find anything new, finding, you know, find myths to bust? Um or, you know, in, in in your research, did you find, well, I suppose, did you find things you weren't expecting to find and what most surprised you? Yeah, I think, do you know, with this book, what I really wanted to do was to really humanise Elizabeth. And that's something that I try to do with all of my work is to try and bring the, the human and the emotional side of these people um. Uh, onto the page for the reader and what actually really surprised me was how much I really resonated with Elizabeth's story and it sounds like a really strange thing to say because I mean first and foremost 
my father hasn't executed my mother and you know <laughs> so there's lots of things that well, that's a tick in his favor yeah. I know it is <laughs> so there's lots of things that I obviously none of us can possibly identify with but mm. um even though I knew the story of Elizabeth's youth I don't know in some ways I felt really connected to it because I was remembering the things that I was going through when I was a teenager when I was in my 20s and in a different way I didn't have a good time and so I felt that I could really identify with Elizabeth in so many respects in terms of like I say 16th century mindset doesn't compare to a 21st century mindset but just in terms of the emotional turmoil and the change and you know, not knowing quite what life has in store for you. Mm. I think that that really kind of threw me in some ways and I wasn't expecting to feel like that, but I did. And, you know, and I was thinking about um, the fact that my stepdaughter now is 15 and thinking about what Elizabeth was going through when she was 15 and, you know, all of the things that happened with Thomas Seymour and just, it was very, um, it was very grounding, I think, and just, yeah, emotive on a much deeper level than I was expecting. Mm, I think it is difficult to think of these people as real people. I, yeah. I just think that's where history drama sometimes helps, sometimes sometimes elevates them to a godlike status, which isn't as helpful. But um, Leslie Smith, who's been on here, you know, she always says, you know, when they put salt on their tongue, sugar on their tongue, lemon on tongue, it tasted the same to them. You know, they're just real people. Um, but it is a challenge to make them feel real. So yeah. well done for you for, for getting for getting to that. Now, also, you probably come across this all the time, but undoing and redoing people's understanding of a subject is so much more complex, isn't it, than just presenting new facts. So if you could completely undo just one myth about Elizabeth easily, which one would it be? I think that there is kind of this long-standing belief, which has been challenged recently by people like the brilliant Tracy Borman, you know, that Elizabeth wouldn't actually have felt the impact of her mother Anne Boleyn's passing. Um, and that's something that I would really challenge and want to undo. And I think that that's actually to a degree supported by some of the science, which, you know, I had a chat with somebody, a neuroscientist about this for my, um, for my research, which was quite interesting. Mm. Um, but that's something I think that people are far too dismissive of that and say, well, you know, Elizabeth was, she wasn't even three when her mother died, she wouldn't have remembered her. And the chances are, I mean, yes, perhaps her memories of her would have been very few and far between. I don't doubt that. But I think that it's something that's just far too easily disregarded. Mm. There's a difference between memories you can recall and those kind of hardwired feelings emotions I don't know that, that you that you get from obviously we know development is incredibly important before the yeah. age of three yeah. so yeah absolutely and you know and it, this is only we we can't I I always I'm a bit nervous about talking about you know, medical things and how people felt 500 years ago because we we don't really know but when I was chatting to this neuroscientist and he was trying to explain to me that Elizabeth would have felt this impact of Anne's loss because things like the fact that she wasn't actually breastfed by her own mother that would have been that would have been something that had an impact on her development and the fact that she would have been raised you know from birth knowing that Anne wasn't a constant figure, but that is mother. So suddenly mother isn't there any longer. Um, and that would have had some kind of impact on her in an emotional sense. So it was really fascinating to have a chat and think about it from that perspective as well. And I mean, really, none of us will know what the full impact of Anne's loss was on Elizabeth. But it is really interesting to consider these different possibilities and thought processes. Mm. And to not dismiss them out of hand. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that then. So obviously um, Anne Boleyn's executed before Elizabeth's even turned three. She's uh, she's executed in May. Elizabeth would turn three in the September. And at that point, Elizabeth is declared illegitimate. 
on the grounds that her parents' marriage never existed, because Henry, of course, doesn't like divorcing. He just likes pretending that they never really happened, uh, such was his MO. So, um, but what what happens to Elizabeth at that point? What would she have noticed about the changes around her and her status? Yeah, well, it's quite interesting because there is a source that says that very, very early on, she um, had spoken to Sir John Shelton, who oversaw her household at Hatfield, where her nursery was established, and says to him, you know, basically, why is it that yesterday I'm called Princess and today I'm called Lady Elizabeth? So if that's very famous and if that is the case, then it does show just how precocious she was. And I think that is very much in keeping with everything we know about Elizabeth. You know, we know that she was extremely, um, you know, she she was very aware of everything that was going on around her. Um, in all other respects, it's difficult to know exactly how she would have noticed in terms of her everyday life because things went on very much as normal for her in so much that she was still surrounded by her household she was still in her same home primarily at Hatfield um, and would have still been treated with reverence however if the reports of her governess Lady Bryan are to be believed then it wasn't long until Elizabeth had been, um, Elizabeth's needs were neglected and it's in the August. So just a couple of months after Anne Boleyn's been executed that Lady Bryan is writing to um, Thomas Cromwell saying that Elizabeth has outgrown all of her clothes. Um, And this has been taken, I think, as a sign of neglect on Henry's part towards his daughter. I don't think it's anything really like that. I think it's just perhaps... I mean, A, um, it is possible that Lady Bryan could have been exaggerating the situation to make sure that Elizabeth wasn't forgotten because by now Henry was wrapped up in his new wife, Jane Seymour. But I think that actually it's perhaps just a sign that, you know, whilst Anne had been alive, she was very much the one who was in charge of overseeing her daughter's care and her daughter's wardrobe. And Henry, let's face it, with everything Kelsey had going on, he wasn't going to be too troubled by his daughter's wardrobe. Um, And we do also know that Jane Seymour did buy clothes for Elizabeth. So I think that actually on a day-to-day basis, not too much would have changed for Elizabeth. And perhaps she wouldn't have been too aware of the fact that she had been declared illegitimate. We don't actually know how Sir John Shelton answered that question. You know, why why am I now Lady Elizabeth? I'd love to have known. Yes. (laughs) Three-year-olds are tricky, (laughs) (laughs) especially when they're Elizabeth I. Now, of course, like you've already said, it wasn't at all a given that that Elizabeth was going to be queen. Yes, she was in the line of succession, but she had her younger brother, Edward VI, who would become Edward VI ahead of her. And there was no real reason to believe that he wouldn't grow older other than he was very very pious and didn't really seem to like girls much but that you know to to have heirs of his own and then the backup to him of course was Mary yes slightly older but you know again perfectly plausible that she's going to have children and then you've got Elizabeth so but Elizabeth of course does become queen on the death of of Mary in 1558 how well equipped was she to become a queen, to rule, to have that position, bearing in mind everything that's happened. Yeah, I think actually everything that had happened made sure that she was well-equipped to deal with that. I think she was very fortunate um, that she wasn't the eldest of the two sisters, her and Mary, because I think that that gave her an opportunity to watch and learn where Mary was concerned But also prior to that, one of the things that I think is so interesting, but also really frustrating about Elizabeth is in the aftermath of Edward VI's death, when there's the power struggle going on between Lady Jane Grey and Mary. And Elizabeth's voice during this time is completely silent. She she just doesn't say anything or if she does then it doesn't survive but actually I can imagine that she probably didn't say anything and being the younger of the sisters really worked to her advantage because it took her out of the immediate spotlight nobody was quite as concerned with what Elizabeth was going to do as they were with 
what Mary was going to do. And I think that that was a real moment for Elizabeth when she really did just lie low, watched and waited to see how events would play out. And then I think it's quite interesting that when and Mary Mary becomes queen. Immediately, Elizabeth writes to her to congratulate her and really wants to be there, seen by Mary's side and really keen to identify with her. But I think, you know, it could so easily have gone the other way and who knows. Um, but I think that that's a really important experience for Elizabeth. And then I think she does really do the same during Mary's reign in so much that she watches, she sees what Mary's doing and she gauges how people react and she sees the unpopularity, for example, of Mary's marriage to Philip of Spain. And we know she comments on that later and says about the fact that her sister has lost the love of her people because she marries a foreigner. And so I think all these things kind of clock up in Elizabeth's mind and she thinks, okay, mustn't marry a foreigner, make a note of that. Don't do this, don't do that. And I think that that's probably to Mary's disadvantage in lots of ways, because mm. you know, we know Mary hasn't necessarily been given the best reputation by history. Yes, there's lots of work now to rehabilitate her and in lots of senses, rightly so. But Elizabeth does really get that opportunity to capitalise on Mary's mistakes so that when she becomes queen, she does almost kind of have this checklist of things not to do and perhaps also ideas of how she wants to do things differently. Mm. Mary doesn't get enough credit for being the one who, she's the one who did, she did a speech at Guildhall, yeah. you know, saying, I am married to my people. And I did a, I did a bit of an experiment on social media, putting that uh, putting an extract of that, well, that, that sort of sentence, a couple of sentences, when she says that, um, asking people who they thought, you know, whether it was Elizabeth or, or Mary who, who made the speech. And of course, overridingly, people thought it was Elizabeth who'd made that speech. Oh, really? They didn't realise that Mary was the first to to make that, I don't know, I don't know what you'd call it, but, you know, that's because... Wow. I'm married to my people, the my people and my children, or or my, married to my sorry, my, my 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 people and my children, and you know, really making that point. And I don't, she doesn't get credit for that. Um, whereas That's, Elizabeth says it, and everyone, yeah, I think you're, you're so right. I think on so many levels, Mary's been given a really really bad rep, and yeah, you're so right. She's so. I think Elizabeth does learn a lot from her in in a positive way as well as you know, how not to do things because you're right like Mary she does make that speech and it's quite extraordinary and she succeeds in persuading her people to stand by her so it's a success and um, and Elizabeth I think as we know she always claims to be married to her people and cares a lot about public opinion and I don't think any of that would have been lost on her I think she mm -hmm. knew she knew the powers of being able to appeal to your people directly and to be able to communicate with them. And mm. I think that's definitely something that Mary has really kind of solidified for her. Mm. Yeah, she saw it working and, right, I'll take that one. I'll do that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll do that. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's interesting. So, um, and you've spoken a, a little bit about Lady Bryant and obviously Mary, but who, who were the women I'm interested in who were the women in, in Elizabeth's life as she was growing up and what impact did they have on her, sort of especially once her mother was um, no longer with her? Yeah, so we know that um, Lady Bryan is replaced by Lady Troy, um, who unfortunately we don't know a great deal about Lady Troy. She had probably... Um, she may have served Anne Boleyn. Um, she certainly had close links with Anne Boleyn's household. Um, yeah, we don't know a lot about her relationship with Elizabeth, but Elizabeth did carry on paying her a pension. So after Lady Bright, um, after Lady Troy had retired, so it does seem probable that they were quite close. I think probably one of the most famous relationships during Elizabeth's youth with a woman is with Kate Astley or um, Kat Ashley, as she's sometimes better known. Mm. And I think that that relationship is extraordinary on so many levels because the women that were around Elizabeth during her youth were 
basically an extension of her family. They were her family, even though they weren't blood related. And I think that Kate Astley is a really important figure in Elizabeth's life. And you know, she arrives in her household probably a couple of months after Anne Boleyn's execution and stays with her until Kate's death. So that relationship is hugely important on an emotional level, but also it had been Kate who was responsible for beginning Elizabeth's first lessons, which is also something quite unusual because that you don't see that. You don't see members of the household being responsible for educating their charges. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that that's important on so many levels. And Elizabeth clearly has a great deal of respect and loyalty for Kate. And we see this throughout her life and Kate's devoted to her. And then of course, there's also the relationship that Elizabeth shares with Catherine Parr, the last of her stepmothers. And that is obviously a hugely important relationship for Elizabeth on a personal level, but also in terms of um, her status, because having a good relationship with Catherine is really Elizabeth's key to her father and being close to her father and making sure that she's remembered by him as well. So you've got sort of Kate on the one hand who is there for emotional support and Catherine's there for that too, but she's also the one who's going to make sure that Elizabeth's interests are protected in terms of her future, or she should be anyway. Um, And so I think that those are the two primary ones. But there are other women who surround Elizabeth who are really important to her. And one of the ones who I think is a bit overlooked, but um, I would argue is quite important, is Elizabeth Fitzgerald or Fair Geraldine, as (laughs) she may be be known to some because that is how she's referred to in a poem that's written by the Earl of Surrey about her. And... She arrives in Elizabeth's household at quite an early age, quite a young age. And again, she does sort of pop up in the sources quite often in snippets throughout Elizabeth's youth. So I think that this was someone who was closer to Elizabeth in age than either Catherine or Kate Astley and somebody who... Elizabeth could relate to on that more, um, you know, personal level in terms of having someone to talk to who was... Um, yeah, who who was a similar age and going through a similar time in her life. And we know again that she she definitely was somebody who was trusted by Elizabeth and um, who remained loyal to her for the rest of her life. So there are quite a few female influences around Elizabeth that are key. And, you know, we often talk about when Elizabeth becomes queen about the men in her life, but it is important to note that there are these important women around her as well and that she does have strong relationships with them on personal and political levels. Mm, Strong and long-term. Yes, exactly. And that's it, really. I think with Elizabeth, when you were in, then you were really in and she would be loyal to you forever. And we see that when the Seymour scandal unfolds with Kate Astley, that... Elizabeth refuses to portray her or to hear a bad word against her, really. She's just so steadfastly loyal to her. And that's, I think, a really admirable trait of Elizabeth's that's sometimes overlooked a bit, is that she did, she was steadfastly loyal and devoted to those who were in her inner circle. Mm. It's a good trait to have. And so we've alluded to, well, you've alluded to Thomas Seymour a couple of times. So let's Let's delve into that. So Thomas Seymour obviously marries Catherine Parr after Henry VIII dies and Elizabeth becomes his ward. Is that right? So lives with her via him. How does that work and what's their relationship? Let's, yeah. do, let's delve in. What's the assessment of, of their relationship? As, yeah. So he's not really, sorry, Elizabeth's not really officially his ward. She right. goes to... She goes to live with Catherine Parr in the aftermath of Henry VIII's death, um, primarily at Chelsea. And then, as you say, Catherine Parr marries Thomas and um, Thomas moves in and joins the household. And effectively, I suppose he's in charge of her in so much that he is the man of the house and oversees 
life in Catherine's household. Um, and unfortunately, it's not long before he really abuses that role. And it's really quite interesting, I think, because if the circumstances had been different, if Henry VIII had still been alive, I I just don't think there's any way we would have seen the kind of behaviour from Thomas that we do. You know, the fact that he he has a key to every room in the house, he begins letting himself into Elizabeth's bedchamber in the morning. And to begin with, Elizabeth is seemingly quite flattered by his attentions because he is quite an attractive man. Um, he's very charismatic, very charming. And I think probably this is the first time that we hear about that Elizabeth would have been paid those kinds of attentions. And how old is she at this point? She's 14 at this point, so painfully, painfully young. Um, But it doesn't take long, actually, before she becomes alarmed by his behaviour and he starts to come into her chamber before she's risen in the morning. He opens the bed curtains and makes as though he will come at her. That's what we're told in the sources. Um, And, you know, we're told that he slaps her buttocks. Um, And again, Kate Astley... Uh, she was initially quite charmed by Seymour as well, and I think had a, a bit of a crush on him, to be perfectly honest. But she soon realises that his behaviour is beginning to draw comment, and that Elizabeth's most precious asset is her reputation. There can't be any taint of slander attached to the king's sister, Edward VI's sister, Elizabeth. And so she does rebuke Seymour and tries to protect Elizabeth in that way and Seymour it just makes short shrift of it and refuses to, to comply. We do know then that Kate Astley does eventually go and complain to Catherine Parr and I have to say Catherine doesn't necessarily come out of this looking particularly good um, because I think I think she was just head over he head over heels in love with Seymour and didn't want to believe what was going on under her roof. And she begins, she does begin to accompany him on his visits to Elizabeth's chamber. And it's almost like, I don't know, it's just a very, it's very uncomfortable when you read all of this in the sources about what's going on at this time and Catherine's participation. And that's the only defence that I can think of for her because we know she's a very intelligent, very sensible woman And I can only imagine that she is just blinded completely by her passion for Thomas, um, which convinces her to go along with his behaviour. And as soon as Catherine becomes involved, the morning visits become more than morning visits. And, um, you know, Catherine and Seymour chase her Elizabeth around the gardens at Hanworth and, It said that Catherine holds Elizabeth while Seymour shreds Elizabeth's dress and all of this sort of behaviour is going on. And it I think it just doesn't take Elizabeth long to become seriously, seriously alarmed by this and feeling extremely vulnerable and probably very confused, wondering why Catherine's going along with this as well. And well, is that okay? Because my stepmom's taking part too. And it's all very, very distressing. And Eventually, matters come to a head when Catherine apparently walks in on um, Elizabeth sat on Seymour's knee with her arms about his neck. And apparently that is the final straw. Suddenly the penny drops and it dawns on Catherine that this is not right at all. And Elizabeth, whether, um, again, this report comes from Thomas Parry, Elizabeth's cofferer, and he says that he can't remember whether... Um, whether Elizabeth was sent from the household by Catherine or whether Elizabeth chose to leave. I think he's probably covering up for Elizabeth a bit there, I think. Um, but the the result is the same and Elizabeth does leave Catherine's household, but it's all hugely, hugely traumatic for her mm-hmm. and leaves the relationship between Catherine and Elizabeth damaged, um, although they do seemingly seem to repair it. But I think ultimately, after something like that has happened, can it ever really be fully repaired? Can it ever really be the same again? I would say probably not. It's the the dress dress shredding incident to me 
it's so harrowing. You've got physical, emotional, mental abuse there in one go, trust, you know, falling falling away. She must have been completely confused and yeah. scared and frightened. And yet with the Thomas Seymour affair, let's say, um, as an event, um, yeah. it, we, the, the focus seems to be on him and, you know, how badly behaved he is, of yeah. course, and but very little on what real impact did that ho- have on Elizabeth? Oh, she she lived with them and then she didn't. And that her relationship with Catherine Parr, again, the 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 trust, she she had a mother figure and she's credited with lots of good stuff with Elizabeth. And then, but actually I think for her to have undermined all of the good stuff she'd done is worse than never doing the good stuff in the first place um, yeah. in terms of a developed, you know, in terms of the relationship with Elizabeth, but that developmental stage that Elizabeth was in uh, at that point, um, it's quite surprising actually that she didn't have more trust issues. <laughs> Maybe that's because she yeah. also had these other female good friend, good long friendships already standing. Yeah, it's already standing. But yeah, it's it's a it's it's you're right. It's I, Catherine doesn't come out of this very well at all, and I think it must have been difficult. You know, um, it, it must have been very difficult for Kate Astley and the other members of Elizabeth's household who've been with her. Many of them have been with her since she was very, very small. And they're basically powerless to protect her. Mm. Um, Kate's done all she can by reporting the incident to, uh, well, first of all, complaining to Thomas himself and then reporting it to Catherine Parr. But yeah, to see those people who were actually charged with caring for her and for making sure she has a safe home, that they're actually the ones who are responsible for treating her in this way. Mm. It's just absolutely, it's appalling. And as I say, I do think, I do think that if Henry VIII had been alive, then that just wouldn't have happened. It wouldn't have played out in that way. And I think, so that's, I think a real show of Seymour's arrogance, the fact that he thought that he could get away with that. But yeah, the same with Catherine, you know, it's, um, it's very difficult to find a way, any kind of justification or understanding for her behaviour. And as I say, that's my only kind of defence for her as such. And it's not a defence, but I just, my only thing that I can think of is just that that personal strength of feeling that she has for her husband. Mm. Now, unfortunately, this isn't the last time Elizabeth is in any dangerous situation, Um Life in the line of succession, especially if you're illegitimate, is uh, was fraught with danger for her. And she found herself arrested and imprisoned on a number of occasions during yeah. the reigns of her uh, half-siblings, Edward VI and obviously Mary I. And the second theme of your book actually is Elizabeth's prisoner. Can you tell us a bit more about Elizabeth's incarcerations? Um, you know, what was she what was she suspected of and how was she kept? What were her conditions like? Yeah, so Elizabeth is um, implicated in the Wyatt Rebellion against her half-sister Mary in January 1554. And um, she seems to have had some knowledge of the plot, which was probably orchestrated by Sir Thomas Wyatt um, and aimed to really oppose Mary's marriage to Philip of Spain, but also to topple Mary and replace her with Elizabeth. And Elizabeth certainly has quite close connections with a lot of the conspirators. So I do definitely think that she was aware of what was going on. I don't think she was directly involved, probably not. Um, But I think that she certainly didn't reveal what she knew to the Queen. And Mary was suspicious enough of Elizabeth to order her to be brought to London from her house in Hertfordshire of Ashridge. And she was taken to the Palace of Whitehall for questioning. She wouldn't admit anything. And this is something that's really characteristic of Elizabeth. She does exactly the same during the Seymour scandal as just claims to know nothing. And, um, Mary was just unconvinced by Elizabeth's claims of innocence. And so she decided to send Elizabeth to the tower. And I think that this is something 
It's really difficult, but I think that this is something that this, this is quite cruel on Mary's part because I think she knows, of course, that Elizabeth has lost her mother in the tower. Um, but I think that Mary does also believe genuinely that Elizabeth has been plotting against her and is genuinely devastated by this. Mm -hmm. So I do have sympathy for her in that respect too. Um, but Elizabeth, the news that she's going to be sent to the tower is absolutely devastating and terrifying. She knows full well what happens in the tower. And, you know, she's just heard the news also that their cousin, Lady Jane Grey, has been executed as a result of the Wyatt Rebellion. And Jane's had no involvement in the Wyatt Rebellion at all. But her father has been one of the main figureheads and that sealed her fate. And so I think there's good reason for Elizabeth to be terrified because if she knows that Jane hasn't been involved, yet she's lost her life, mm. but actually Elizabeth was the one who they wanted to replace Mary with, I think she really did think that there was a chance she could be executed. And so in this stalling tactic, we see her write the famous Tide letter to Mary in which you know, she begs she begs Mary not to send her to the tower. She begs Mary not to let her enemies convince Mary of Elizabeth's guilt. And she just wants the opportunity to be able to speak to Mary in person and declare her innocence. And we know it's obviously called the Tide Letter because by the time it's finished, um, they've missed the tide and Elizabeth can't be taken to the tower that day. Mary's totally furious and refuses to have anything to do with Elizabeth's letter. Elizabeth is taken to the tower and the likelihood is that she was housed in the same royal apartments as her mother had once occupied before her coronation and then before her execution. And this is a this is a tricky one because in some respects you could say well that means that she was quite well kept you know she wasn't taken to a dungeon but actually I think that the mental torture and trauma of knowing that that's where your mother has spent her final days must have been hugely impactful on Elizabeth and we know that she falls ill while she was in the tower she does quite often fall ill during times of stress and I think that that's no wonder in this situation um but you could say that her everyday living conditions were quite comfortable. You know, she's allowed to have her food brought in for her. She's allowed to have some of her servants with her. And at some point she is allowed to go out and walk in the tower gardens. So in that respect, she's well looked after. But it is just that emotional fear and turmoil of not knowing whether you're going to live or die that really plagues her. Um but it doesn't take long for that to fade because within a matter of weeks, it was becoming very, very obvious that there was no evidence against Elizabeth and the grounds for keeping her in the tower were becoming less and less. And with that, I don't think that a fear ever truly leaves Elizabeth while she's in the tower, but I think she comes to recognise that if Mary was going to act against her, it would have been sooner rather than later. Um, although we do know that when um, a new a new jailer in the form of Sir Henry Beddingfield arrives at the tower, that Elizabeth is terrified because she thinks he's come to murder her. So there is this real emotional turmoil going on. Um, but eventually, yeah, it becomes obvious Mary can't keep Elizabeth in the tower any longer. And in what I think is a very deliberate irony on Mary's part, she is freed from the tower on the anniversary of Anne Boleyn's execution, the 19th of May. And I almost kind of wonder if that's almost like some kind of warning from Mary to Elizabeth, you know, you're lucky this time, but don't do it again. And I think it's interesting if there had been further evidence against Elizabeth, would Mary have acted against her? It's really difficult to know. Um, she's certainly very angry with Elizabeth. And I think that that whole encounter marks a real turning point in their relationship. And after that, the relationship that they had once shared, which at one point had been quite close, it's just completely shattered. And it's very obvious that Mary and Elizabeth will never really be truly reconciled. Mm. Yeah, the 19th of May thing, it, it feels like a, it has to have been deliberate. Uh, 
that the significance couldn't have passed anyone by surely but also yeah it's like there's a hidden message in there isn't there maybe maybe not even that subtle uh you know you went this way out the door that time but you know it could you could have gone in a different direction if you if you find yourself here again for any reason yeah yeah absolutely I think so yeah did she get in trouble didn't Elizabeth get in trouble during Edward VI's reign as well or have I got that am I mixing that up with the Seymour thing that that's, that comes about as a result of the Seymour thing, yeah, where she is questioned in the aftermath of the when Seymour is arrested for got like thirty three counts of treason, <laughs> thirty three things that he's potentially done wrong, <laughs> and yeah, and um, Sir Robert Tyrrett Tyrrett arrives at Hatfield to question Elizabeth. Kate Astley and Elizabeth Coffera, Thomas Parry are taken to the tower for questioning over their involvement with Seymour. And really the chief accusation laid against Elizabeth is that she had, Catherine Parr's dead by this time, is that um, she had been complicit in Seymour's plans to marry her and without the council's consent. And if that had been the case, then she would have found herself in very, very deep hot water. But she denies any knowledge of that. She admits that, yes, there's been talk of marriage with Seymour, but that she hasn't really given it any heed and that she would never dream of doing that without the consent of the council anyway. Right. Okay, because I remember there's some letter where she she wants to come and show herself to the council that she's not pregnant. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, that all comes about in the aftermath of Seymour being um, arrested. And she um, there are rumours swirling that she is pregnant by Seymour. And Elizabeth, always very touchy about her reputation, um, desperately writes and says, no, let me come and show myself. Let me show that I'm not I'm not pregnant and these are just sl- shameful slanders is what she refers to them as. She was correct. Was oh, well, correct. Okay. <laughs> so um, how do you think those experiences specifically then, that, that sort of getting into trouble, I'm really close to something uh, catastrophic happening. How do you think those experiences affected Elizabeth later on once she was queen, maybe in how she treated others? I think that she had seen what it was like to be on the other side. She knew what it was like to be accused of complicity in in plotting against somebody. And I think that in some respects, it's quite interesting. I've thought about this in relation to Mary, Queen of Scots specifically. Um, And we know, of course, that Elizabeth is in kind of this whole agony of emotional torment when it comes to eventually ordering Mary Queen of Scots execution and she mm-hmm. doesn't uh, act against an anointed queen and I think that that um I think that that is something that comes from kind of earlier on because I do think that she has this really strong belief in the the powers of monarchy and the mystics around monarchy and believes in all of that and this is one of the things when I say that I don't think Elizabeth um was involved in the Wyatt rebellion I think that she has accepted that her sister is queen and um, and believes that that is right and so doesn't want to plot against her. Um, but I think, so I think that that's, you know, where her reluctance to, to execute Mary Queen of Scots comes from. That's something she strongly believes in. But I think that um, she, she just learns, she becomes very suspicious and mistrustful of people as well. Um, but I think she also knows the, she learns the importance of not acting against people unless you've got evidence to do so. And I think that's why it's so important in Mary Queen of Scots case as well, you know, because there hadn't been any evidence against Elizabeth in the Wyatt Rebellion, yet she's thrown into the tower mm. and she refuses to act then against Mary Queen of Scots until she has that final proof in front of her that yes, actually Mary has been involved in in plotting against her. Um, and yeah, I think that that's something that all comes just very early on. She's very, very aware of condemning people without evidence. And um, because she knows what it's like, she knows what it feels like to be accused of something that you haven't done um, mm-hmm. and there isn't any evidence against you. So I think that, yeah, she becomes a lot more cautious, but suspicious as well as a result of those earlier experiences. Mm. 
I'm just forming a thought here about the change that she saw in Catherine Parr once she got married um, and Elizabeth's, uh, I mean, her treatment of anyone who got married without her express permission. Yeah. <laughs> and I know, I know it was, you know, obviously there's the fact that they their heirs would be her heirs and it's all very difficult. But I'm just wondering whether there's also a, a um, an element of she can't control her the females around her as well if they're married yeah yeah that's a very interesting thought yeah absolutely mm -hmm. yeah it's because I think as well there's been lots made about um Elizabeth not wanting her ladies to marry and so on and so forth but actually in some circumstances she doesn't mind I think it depends who the husband is as well you know mm. I think she can control the husband or she's got a good relationship with the husband, then it's fine. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I think you're onto something there. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, when Elizabeth found out she was queen, obviously this is 17th of November, 1558, Mary's in London. Elizabeth's actually under house arrest, isn't she, at Hatfield House? Is she? She's been... She's not under house arrest, no, but she's she's living a quiet, a very quiet life at this point and trying to keep her head down. Because yeah. my question was, why is she not in London? Um, you know, Mary's obviously ill. Would it not have been usual for her to have maybe been around the court? Or how come she's where she is? I think what we've got to remember is that at this time, as I mentioned earlier, in the aftermath of the White Rebellion, the relationship between Mary and Elizabeth has really broken down. And although there are, let's just say, kind of, they do see each other again and there are cordial displays kind of between them, it's very obvious that Mary doesn't trust Elizabeth any longer. And right. there are a couple of other plots that happen in the aftermath of the Warwick Rebellion, notably the Dudley conspiracy. Um, and again, you know, to kind of get rid of Mary. And I think that Elizabeth really does kind of just lie low at this time because Mary can't bear to have Elizabeth anywhere near her. And it's right. actually only really in the last couple of weeks of her life that Mary is forced to acknowledge that Elizabeth is going to be the one to succeed her. And deep down in her heart of hearts, I think she knew that, you know, when it became apparent that she wasn't going to have a child um, in 1555, when she may well have had a phantom pregnancy, I think really deep down, she knows then that Elizabeth will succeed, but it takes a very, very long time for her to be able to come to terms with that and accept that. And I think for as long as she's alive, we know that, obviously, as you said, uh, Mary dies on the 17th of November. She'd last seen Elizabeth in the February when Elizabeth had come to visit her briefly. But after that, Elizabeth is kept very much out of sight and stays at Hatfield where she's gathering supporters and building up this network ready for the takeover. Um, it turns out she doesn't really need that because, you know, everybody... Well, most people accept and are happy for her to succeed. But yeah, apart from Mary, who there's this huge mental stumbling block for Mary. And I think it's very difficult for her to accept that she isn't going to have a child mm. on a personal and a political level. But yeah, she certainly, she becomes more and more bitter towards Elizabeth in her later years. And I think that this real association with Anne Boleyn comes back to haunt Mary. She remembers the way in which Anne Boleyn had treated her when she was growing up, and that really manifests itself in Elizabeth's direction. And so it's she just doesn't want Elizabeth anywhere near her. I hadn't realised it had been so long by the time Mary died that they, they hadn't seen each other. That's, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. Now, obviously, Elizabeth, we've spoken about as a just as a, on a human level, has got to be affected by her upbringing in a way that would Im impacted on her personality, her view of life, and her decision making. Which aspect of her life do you think was most affected by her upbringing? You know, is it her personality? Or was it the decision around marriage? Her temper? She's got temper. Yeah, she had. Yeah. Like, what do you think was the one thing that was most affected? 
by your upbringing as opposed to maybe being a personality trait yeah I think oh that's so difficult because you could say all of it Mm. (laughs) um Mm. I definitely I would say the aversion to marriage and um you know she she says she actually says that during the reign of her brother Edward she declared to the king that she had no wish to marry she really wanted to remain single and I think that it's quite interesting that she had made you know we talked about the fact that she obviously we know she doesn't go on to marry and the fact that she does have this aversion to marry from a young age but I think that that is completely shaped by her experiences because let's not forget she would also have been raised with this expectation of being obedient whether that be to her father when he was king or then her brother when he becomes king and so we know of course that Really, from the moment she's born, there are negotiations afoot to marry her off to somebody who basically is the highest bidder and whoever's going to bring the most political advantage. And there are talks of her marriage throughout Henry VIII's reign and the same throughout Edward's reign. And I think that it's it's really no wonder um, when we do look at the examples of Henry VIII's wives, but, you know, but not just them, uh, other relationships, other marriages that Elizabeth would have seen at court. You know, some of them are happy. A lot of them aren't. Most of them are made for political reasons. So I think really it's no wonder that she does make this decision from a very, very early age that she doesn't want to marry because, you know, she sees the consequences of these marriages. Admittedly, execution is quite rare. In terms of, yeah, it's only Henry Davies who executes wives, yeah. But you know, does see what's happened with Anne of Cleves, sees the way in which women at court are you know, dying as a result of childbirth, and I think that this is something that's hugely, hugely traumatic, and that it must have impacted on Elizabeth. And you know, we see again the same with Catherine Parr that. She sees her beloved stepmother die as a result of complications in childbirth as well. And I think, well, yeah, actually, is it any wonder that this is something that carried on through? Mm-hmm. And, you know, we we know, of course, in Elizabeth's reign, she does toy with the idea of marriage. And some would argue comes quite close to making mar- a marriage alliance. But I think, actually, it is only toying. I think she knows deep down very very early on in her life that yeah this is just not for me um it could end badly on so many different levels so yeah I think that's definitely something that we see because of her early experiences Mm. I mean she's seen the humiliation of her sister twice two phantom pregnancies and I wonder how much she would have known about her mother's miscarriages and thought yeah actually you know, there's the risk of in childbirth, but there's the risk that something could go wrong before that. And yeah. I've seen it or, you know, I know of close examples. It's yeah. so risky on so many levels. For yeah. yeah, absolutely. But I think it's quite, it's also, it's a great, it's an interesting testament of Elizabeth's character and personality that she does speak out about this before she becomes queen as well because you know I mentioned the fact that she would have been expected to just do what she was told Mm. Um, so I think that it's interesting that she felt I mean we know that her relationship with Edward her brother was quite close but that she did feel able to say to him well actually no I would prefer to stay single if that was a possibility it also Uh, sounds like a wonderfully petulant teenage the rebellious thing to say I know that I am supposed to get married and have children so therefore I'm not going to yeah Yeah, absolutely I could say and she you know she does this during Mary's reign as well when they try to when Philip her brother-in-law tries to hoist a suitor on her and Elizabeth's just like no I don't think so I don't want to marry him and I think Mary's quite pleased about it really because she doesn't think that Elizabeth deserves a nice suitor um, (laughs) because she's only Anne Boleyn's daughter after all so why should she be married into the nobility of Europe but um Mm. but yeah it does I think it does it takes a certain kind of character to actually stand up and say no 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 hang on a minute I'm not doing that Definitely. But as you say, petulant teenager and (laughs) someone who's got a real strength of character, but, you know, who hasn't actually got any kind of, she hasn't got anyone to back her up. 
Mm. Um, you know, she hasn't got any she hasn't got any supporters or family abroad in the same way as Mary has with the Emperor Charles V, who's really like got her back the whole way through. Elizabeth hasn't got any of that. So I think it's really, really brave of her that she is prepared to risk the wrath of her half siblings by just saying, it's not for me. No, not doing it. Um, How close do you think she came to marriage and how... With Robert Dudley, I'm thinking specifically, do you think if he hadn't have married Amy Robsart that there may that maybe he would have been the one that she oh, could have been tempted into marriage with? I think I think she would have definitely been tempted, but ultimately I really I just don't think she would have gone there. I think she I think she would have come very, very close to letting the heart rule the head where he was concerned. Because we all know let's face it he was the love of her life there's no doubt about that but I just don't think ultimately I just don't think that she would have allowed herself to have taken it any further um who knows one of history's here's a, greatest what ifs here's a question for you then because this is another what if sorry but yeah. what if she hadn't become queen oh yeah that's a that's so difficult because Again, we see Edward VI try to marry her off, as in he's exploring potential candidates for her hand. And then, you know, who knows? If he'd lived longer, maybe something would have come it come of it at that time. I think maybe then she could have ended up married. But during Mary's reign, I think as soon as the Wyatt Rebellion's over um, and things have died down and Mary's phantom pregnancy has happened. I think Elizabeth realises, I think that's what makes her so strong is that she, she her confidence grows because she realises that Mary's not actually going to act against her and that gives her the confidence to say no. So mm. I think that the only scenarios that we'd have seen her marry if she hadn't become queen is if her father had lived long enough to arrange a marriage for her or if Edward had lived long enough to do the same. But I think with Mary in charge, it would not have happened. Mm, interesting. Mm. So um, my final question for the main part of the interview, and then we'll, we'll get on to the questions that my patrons have put forward. So I think we end up with this impression and, and we sort of spoke about this at the beginning Um of Elizabeth because we look back on her as somebody who she's very self-assured, confident, um, forthright, quick-witted. And I mean, if you scratch the surface, you find out there's, there's a, she's a lot more complex than that, um, which is actually why I liked her in the first place and sometimes why I don't like her so much as well. But anyway, <laughs> um, what do you, if you were going to describe Elizabeth's personality, um, how do you think you would describe her as accurately as possible? And did her personality change over time? Yeah, I think I would describe her as being, I would describe her, I think her personality does change over time. And I think she becomes more spoiled because she has got the ability to be more spoiled and the the power and authority to do so when she becomes queen. I think there's no way you'd have seen her having some of the tantrums that she was having, or, you know, perhaps she would have behind closed doors, but we certainly, we don't hear about them anyway in her younger years. Um, so perhaps that's something that, that becomes more of a thing. Um, I think she was, I think she was a very strong-minded individual who was, fiercely intelligent and who knew who knew her own mind mm. but who was also because of the circumstances in which she found herself who was forced to rely on her own judgment and keep her feelings hidden at times so that's something that changes because that comes out arguably in some respects it it never comes out because yeah, sometimes we don't really know what she's thinking, but it does come out later a bit more. Um, and I think that she was someone who was very shrewd, again, because she had to be, because of the, the times. Um, somebody who was cautious as well. Um, but I think that there are sides of her that are, you know, lighter. As we said, she's very loyal and I think actually very 
generous and warm-hearted to those that she loved um but yeah I, th I think that these personality traits they do definitely develop when she becomes queen and suddenly she doesn't have to keep up the mask of mm. you know, of caution all the time um but Elizabeth is someone who I feel even when she becomes queen is I don't know and I don't know if this will make sense but I think in some ways she's very knowable but in lots of ways she remains very unknowable there's lots about her personality that we still don't know and that we don't know, um, you know, if that is a true reflection of who she was. The fact that, like I say, that she kept her feelings hidden. Was she naturally somebody who actually preferred to speak about her feelings? I don't know. We just don't know. It's kind of something that she trained herself to do. Mm. Um, so I think that the personality traits we see in her are personality traits that were almost forced on her because of the way in which her life played out. So to ultimately round off the question, I think it's very difficult to know exactly what her personality was. Um, but I think that, as I say, we do see, we see the mask slip a bit more when she becomes queen and we see those examples of the famous temper mm -hmm. um, and we see somebody who did actually really care about the people who were really close to her and who also cared what people thought of her too. Mm. Wonderful. That's a great way to, to finish off. Um, before we do move on, though, um, I want to ask, while we've got everyone on, any well, what's your, any more books in the pipeline then? I know you're going to have a lot of um, talks and everything, obviously with the release of Young Elizabeth, but um, are you allowed to tell us what you're working on next? Do you know? I'm actually not working on anything at the moment. So I'm <laughs> open to ideas. <laughs> yeah, I'm open to ideas. So I'm not, I, I haven't got anything exciting to share really. Um, or I haven't even got that, you know, line where I say, oh, I'm working on something, but I can't tell you what it is. Because <laughs> I'm genuinely not, I think. Yeah, I I want to, what I can say is that I want to do something a bit different. And I don't necessarily mean that I want to move away from the Tudors or the Wars of the Roses, whatever, but I just, I want to do something a bit different than a straight biography. So I don't know, but when I do, you'll be the first to know. <laughs> I'm excited already. So, um, yeah, so we thought we've got some great questions coming up from patrons. We're going to delve in a lot more to her Elizabeth's relationship with her father and her sister, particularly. But um, before we move on to that, because we'll be we'll be leaving the main audience behind and just going over onto Patreon. Um, please remind people where they, where, about your book, when it's going to be released, and also where can they find you online and follow your work. Yeah, absolutely. So the book is released in the UK and the US on the 29th of February, unusually the same day. So I'm very happy about that. Um, yeah, makes it easier. Yeah, it does. I understand it's going to be out slightly later in Australia, um, a few months later. I'm sorry, I can't remember the exact date. Um, and then to find me, you can find me on Instagram at Historia Nicola and Twitter at Nicola Talis. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. <laughs> is the story of her uh, finding out that she's queen while sat under an oak tree, is that actually true? No, <gasps> probably not. 